From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. As the baby boom generation begins to reach retirement age, California's senior population will begin to see significant growth. By 2030, the over 65 population will grow by 4 million people and will become a more racially and ethnically diverse population with many living alone. And that has significant implications for the types of senior support services that will be needed in the future. Recently, the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California issued a report planning for California's growing senior population that discussed those implications including the need for more nursing care and assisted living facilities, as well as the need for more health care professionals, especially those who provide home and community-based services for seniors. We'll hear from one of the lead authors of the report, Laurel Beck, policy analyst with the Public Policy Institute of California. The Senior Boom, preparing for the baby boom aftershock. We'll also hear from Jeremy Oliver, program director for the Kern County Office of Aging and Adult Services, and Fresno State gerontology professor Helen Miltiadis. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world, and by Kaiser Permanente. Thrive from the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute. It's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute. Mark Kepler. The nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California recently issued a report entitled Planning for California's Growing Senior Population. Our guest, Laurel Beck, is one of the authors of that report. Laurel is an expert in health policy and the policy challenges relating to aging populations and just happens to be an alum of my alma mater, the University of Wisconsin. So welcome. Thank you. Um, how much has uh, California's senior population, how much is it going to grow in the next 10 or 15 years? Uh, so our report is based on Department of Finance projections, and we show an increase of 87% by the year 2030. And we focus on that year because that's when the last segment of the baby boomers will reach retirement age. And to put that in perspective, um, in 2012, there were 4.6 million Californians that were over age 65. And by that number, it will be, or by that year, excuse me, it will be 8.6 million. Yeah, it's 87%, or in other words, it almost doubles. It almost doubles, yeah. 4 million more seniors. Wow. Um, all kinds of opportunities and, and uh, situations to think about. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's take a little closer look at, at the elderly um, and how the senior population is changing in California. How is it changing ethnically? Uh, the change in the racial ethnic composition is going to be significant. Uh, the numbers of seniors in each racial ethnic group is going to grow, but some race ethnic groups are going to grow faster than others. In particular, we're going to see the fastest rates of growth among the Latino and the Asian Pacific Islander populations. So one example is that in 2012, an estimated 18% of seniors in California were Latino. And in 2030, that share is projected to grow up to 26%. No, quite a substantial yes. increase. Um, so what about males and females? They say that... that uh, females live longer than, than males. Are we going to see a, a large female population? Actually, we're, we think that it's going to go in the other direction. Really? We're expecting to see a slight uptick in the number of males as a proportion of the population, and that's kind of because of some gains we've made in life expectancy on certain health conditions. It's, there's a lot of reasons for it. But based on our number, uh, excuse me, Department of Finance numbers, uh, we think that the share of males in the population is going to go from about 44% in 2012 to about 45.5%. And that sounds small, um, yeah. but it's actually pretty significant in terms of um, in these kind of demographic Yeah, it's kind of surprising, actually. So let's talk about uh, family structures, uh, this idea of single and divorced versus uh, married 
or on the other hand, having children versus not having children. How many California's uh, seniors are going to change in that regard? How is it going to change? Uh, it's going to change a lot, we think, actually. Um, based on survey data, we uh, looked at previous trends, and we when you think about it, in the 1970s and 1980s, we saw shifts away from sort of traditional mom, dad, and two kids family structure. Uh, people were less likely to get married starting around that time. They were less likely to have kids. And those people are now reaching senior age. So we're anticipating seeing seniors that are more likely to have never been married. They're more likely to be divorced. And they're more likely not to have children. But if they, but if they're never been married, they could be with someone and just not married. That's true, and that's that's absolutely true. That we could um, we may not be picking up on specifics um, like if you're cohabiting versus being. Um, Which know, happened like, a lot in the 70s and 80s. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so, so we may be overstating that, but in terms of the number of people in surveys who report that they've never been married, there's going to be a pretty significant uptick. Um, and we think that the number of people who have never had any children is actually going to go up significantly. So one statistic we cite in the paper is that in 2012, 12% of 75-year-old women had no children. And by 2030, we project that that number is going to be 20%. So one in five women are going to not have children, which is a pretty significant part of the population. That's a, that's a big jump. Mm -hmm. Again, almost another one of these doubling of the percentages. So the, so the composition of, this, of seniors in California in 2030, very different than historically has been the, been the case. Absolutely. We think that uh, along a number of dimensions, our report focuses on the demographics, but in a lot of ways, seniors in 2030, seniors looking forward, are going to look pretty different than they have in the past. Now, I want to ask a little bit. I wouldn't, really wasn't addressed in your report, but it's still a very important issue, I think, though, for seniors, and that is fewer workers getting traditional pension plans, mm -hmm. um, more and more getting this 401k option. And the problem is that even those that get the 401k option, a lot of times they don't really use it, mm -hmm. um, and they're not. they're putting away... Too much too little money. What are, what are your thoughts on the economic situation of California seniors going forward? Um, so I think one important point is that I income and wealth are harder to predict than demographics. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that depends on how the overall economy does, how the housing market does, how financial markets do. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little less able to make kind of hard predictions about that. I do think that your point is absolutely taken. People with defined benefit pensions had more predictable income streams. Which is the traditional pension. Yes. Um, versus a shift to 401ks. Um, and you do see lower take up of um, 401ks than you right. saw of defined benefit um, type plans. So I think that there is reason to worry, it, there, there always has been, but maybe more going forward that people are not saving enough, that they um, are not going to have enough resources to support them in the way that they are hoping to continue living mm -hmm. um, as they age. Okay, well, thank you for that description of the key demographic trends in California's emerging senior population. So what are the implications of those trends? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Our guest is Laurel Beck, a co-author of a PPIC report entitled Planning for California's Growing Senior Population. So you state in your report that California's senior population is going to grow substantially in the next 10 to 15 years. But what are the implications of that? Um, I think that the growing senior population has implications for a lot of policy areas. But basically any policy that affects people is going to be affected by a growing senior population. Um, in this particular report, we focus on what that growth means for the demand for support in daily activities and what the state will need to do to anticipate um, the need for facilities and health workers. Yeah. Um, but it really just think of a policy area and more seniors. Is and you're thinking, I'm going to talk more about this later, but I'm sure in terms of uh, living in place um, and, and all the, the health workers that are going to be required to make that happen, mm -hmm. because as you get older, you're going to need some assistance, particularly if you're, if you're not uh, married and, and or don't have children. Absolutely. So what about the ethnic makeup of California seniors? You said that was going to change rather dramatically. Yes. What are the implications of that? We find that according, according to the data, 
people from different racial ethnic groups tend to demand different services. And that you want to be a little careful saying that because they may have differential access to services uh, as could well. Could you give an example of that? Just, you may see that, um, for instance, African Americans use nursing homes at a higher rate than other subpopulations tend to, whereas Latinos tend to use nursing homes at a lower rate. And Any explanation as to why that is? There's a lot of things that may be... Um, there's a lot of different theories. One of them is that maybe um, African Americans, for whatever reason, have less access to home and community-based services. You can also, some people point to cultural differences, which is a very Latinos broad, have extended families, perhaps. Yes, and, and maybe more of a um, more of a desire to try and remain in home as opposed to going into nursing homes. So it could be preferences among consumers. It could that's be really, yeah, traditions among families. It could be information differences across urban versus rural communities, so that right. I think it's a pretty complicated issue, but um, we do see in the data different rates of staying at home versus using nursing homes across different racial and ethnic groups. Yeah. You also see different marital rates across racial and ethnic groups. Sure. So. Well, let's talk about the, the male-female makeup of, of California seniors. I mean, you indicated in the earlier segment that actually the male the portion of, of seniors that are male is actually going to go up a little bit. Any implications of that? Um, I think that th there may be some. I don't think it's going to be nearly as much of a driver of changes as we would think from the racial and ethnic differences. Uh, in our data, we do find that men are slightly more likely to require some assistance with daily activities um, than women are. You're saying are. men are needy? <laughs> <laughs> but I think compared to the racial ethnic trends, this is a, r a relatively small um, small difference. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the consequences of this changing family structures. Uh, I think that's going to be probably a pretty big issue. Um, as, that as the senior population have different family structures than they have traditionally in the past, what are the implications? Um, I agree with you that this is a really big issue. As we age, we are more likely to need help with daily activities, and this can be health care, but it can also be personal care or errands, going to the store, it can be chores like cooking and cleaning. And we know that family members are major providers of those types of services. Right. Um, so as we project that there are going to be more seniors that are unmarried or have never had children, then they're, um, one, less likely to have family to provide that type of support. But we also in our data find that for a lot of reasons, people who say I've never been married are also a little more likely to require some support. So we think this is a population that the state needs to be particularly sort of aware of and focusing on because they're more likely to need external support and it's more likely that they're going to come in contact with state programs. Yeah. Um, what about uh, the potentially worsening economic situation for California's growing senior population? We were talking earlier about the traditional pension plan that people could rely on. Those have gone the way of the dodo bird. I mean, mm -hmm. very rare, uh, except maybe in the public sector. Uh, now more of the 401k situation. What are the consequences? Uh, the biggest consequence that we highlight in this particular report is that the role of state programs is going to become increasingly important. Uh, disabled and low-income seniors will qualify for Medi-Cal and other programs like in-home supportive services. Um, but we're going to see a lot more seniors, and if an increasing number of them are qualifying as low-income, then a lot more people will be qualifying for these programs. Um, and this is part of the reason that we emphasize that policymakers need to be following trends now and paying attention now, even though the bulk of the growth in the over 65 population is yet to come, because the more we plan and understand, the um, more efficiently we can use our resources. You almost see that tidal wave kind of coming toward us and, and all the implications of that. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for talking about the, those implications of this growing uh, senior population. Up next, what are the implications of the aging population on caring for mom and dad? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report.
California's growing senior population is going to be more ethnically and racially diverse than past generations and more likely to live alone. What kinds of support services are going to be needed? We're talking to Laurel Beck with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, who recently co-authored a report entitled Planning for California's Growing Senior Population. So uh, the number of seniors uh, facing difficulty caring for themselves, how much of, is that going to increase? Uh, in our report, we look specifically at that question, and we project an 89% increase in the number of people who report needing some kind of support, uh, and that's going up to just over a million people in the state. And you think about that, 89%, our population is going isn't going to increase 89% no. you know, in the next 15 years, yet this need is going to increase, so it's dramatically more than the increase in the population, so it it's, puts it in context. Um, what about um, estimating the number of people who are going to have difficulty caring for themselves? How did you come up with those estimates? So what we did is we started, the Department of Finance puts together wonderful projections. Looking and this at is the State Department of Finance? The California Department of Finance. Okay. And they put together wonderful projections on the age, racial, ethnic, and gender makeup of the population looking forward into mm -hmm. the future. So we combine those populations with survey data, and we look at the effect of age and gender, but also your educational attainment, your marital status, whether or not you were born in the United States, and use those different factors to sort of predict the likelihood that you're going to require some care. Mm -hmm. So that one million people requiring, requiring care takes into account trends in racial ethnic um, makeup of the population and as well as the like household composition of the population. So we try really hard to take into account how different the seniors are going to look in the future. It's 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 a guess but it's an educated guess. It's a very educated guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say the guess because I know you look at a lot of variables and you make sure it's statistically relevant and all that but uh, it, it, you know, you're projecting. We you are know. yeah absolutely there are things that could change things significantly. Okay, so um, I'm assuming that, that many, if not most, seniors uh, are going to have, even those having some difficulty living on their own, still want to stay in their homes. Is that true? I think it is true. I think that um, the question is what home means. I think that okay. in a, a more, I think, consistent statement is people want to have as much autonomy as they can and as many choices as they can, conditional on their health needs. For and, as long as they can. For as long as they can, right. exactly. But I think that um, one thing you worry a lot about with the senior population is isolation, is getting removed from the community. Right. And a lot of people want to be engaged. They want to be either living with other seniors or living in a more, um, in an environment where they're within walking distance of libraries or stores or other parts of the community. You know, one of the things I find that's interesting when you talk to some seniors is sometimes, you know, they understand that. And, and even senior living is pretty independent. But they, you hear this a lot. Oh, I don't want to be around old people. But, you know, you're older. And, and I think the mix, sometimes I think we, we kind of make the mistake of segregating old people you know, in, into just with other old people. Mm -hmm. And really, maybe a mix with younger and old would be maybe a more vibrant community for some of, some of these folks. Absolutely. Uh, and the kind of services we're talking about here are going to be, you know, if they're in home health care services, that's going to be required if they're living at home. Correct? Um, I think when in, in this particular report, we look at a survey question that says, do you require some support with some activity of daily living, which mm -hmm. is a, a pretty low bar, and it, we don't really get into more serious levels of needs. It's just sort of a yes or no. And so in that respect, that one million number is picking up a pretty broad range of needs. It can be people with very high-level health needs, and it can be people who need help with more basic things like personal care, bathing, and dressing. Well, let's, let's talk about that, because there is a range of, mm -hmm. of needs and, and services. 
that go with, to those needs. One is assisted living. What kind of services do assisted living places provide? Uh, assisted living, you can think of it broadly as sort of a stepping stone between totally independent living in your home and the high-level health supports provided in nursing home care. So most assisted living facilities provide help with things like preparing meals, housekeeping, managing your medications, um, they, it's a, a community where you just don't have to do all of the things that come with home ownership or independent living. Meals are provided, exactly. that kind of thing. But they don't re provide, as a rule, um, the kind of really high-level health care, 24-hour service that most nursing homes provide. There are some facilities that kind of cater to that spectrum and that provide both assisted living and nursing homes. But in general, when you think of assisted living, it's sort of a middle ground. Okay, so, so you've kind of answered the next question I was going to have. What do nursing homes do? So there's a difference between assisted living and nursing homes. Absolutely. But let's talk about uh, the numbers for nursing homes, the, the end of the continuum in terms of the need a lot of assistance. Are those numbers going up, down? Staying the same, what? So, um, in general, since the 1990s, we've actually seen a steady decline in the rate of people using nursing homes and the number of people in a nursing homes. A decline? A um, decline. Does that correspond with more people wanting to stay in their, in a home? It's people wanting to stay in home. It's the uh, increasing availability of things like home health aides or people coming to help you with enabling you to it stay makes, in your you know, home. When you're talking, it makes me think of you know grocery stores that, that will bring now the groceries to your home. Absolutely. And that didn't exist 10, 15 years Absolutely, ago. Absolutely, exactly. Um, and another thing is I think that the, um, <coughs> the medical community um, also appreciates that outcomes can be better at home, so that there's a little more collaboration between medical providers and patients in trying to make that a reality. We've only got about 30 seconds left in the segment. I want to ask you about the costs of nursing care versus in-home or assisted living. What are the cost differences? Um, it ranges tremendously. It depends a lot on what your needs are, where you live, what type of... Um, I'll emphasize again what your needs are. Do you need mm -hmm. health supports or basically personal care supports? We cite one statistic in the paper, which is based off of the AARP's website that estimates cost, um, costs, and they have an estimate. If you live in L.A. County, that it would cost a little over $70,000 for a semi-private room in a nursing home okay. and more like $42,000 for a so home health worker to come 40 hours a week. But there's a lot of ifs. Right, it. right. But it, it basically, it's, it's much less expensive to be in assisted living versus nursing, yes. a nursing home. Yes. Okay. Um, well, that's obviously a growing need for, for senior services. Up next, what should California policymakers be doing in anticipation of this senior boom? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Our guest is Laurel Beck with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, who co-authored a report on California's growing senior population. So the question here is, what should the state government do in anticipation of this future wave of seniors? Um, so, should California policymakers anticipate a demand for uh, increased spending on programs like Medi-Cal or in-home supportive services? Absolutely. Um, most seniors have the majority of their health care provided through Medicare, the federal program, but low-income and disabled seniors qualify for Medi-Cal, which both provides health services and pays for nursing home care and has other programs associated with it, like in-home supportive services, IHSS, mm -hmm. which pays for people to bring support workers into their home to provide with personal care. They don't provide health services, but they do help people stay in their home. And sometimes those are, could be family members. Yes. As well. And there's also discussion, a little bit off the track here, there's been a discussion in the legislature about whether those in-home supportive services employees should be allowed to unionize. And so that becomes a whole other issue because chances are if they unionize, they're going to have better pay and benefits. Um, that will lead to a cost somewhere that someone's going to have to pay. So it's just, it's, there's a lot of things going on here that have policy implications. You know, you state in your report 
that it's helpful to think of two broad categories, where seniors live and what type of workers they're going to need for help. So let's start with where seniors live. Uh, you anticipate that most seniors are going to prefer to remain in their homes. We've talked about that. So how or who should pay for those services? If they want to stay in their home, need in-home supportive services, who's going to pay for that? Uh, for the most part, people are going to be responsible for paying for them on their own. If you aren't low income and don't qualify for Medi-Cal or some other government programs, this is something that you need to anticipate in case anything happens and you require some support. For people who do have low enough income to qualify for Medi-Cal, they can qualify for IHSS and there are some other programs which will allow the state to subsidize bringing workers into your home. But I think another thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of these services are provided in an unpaid way by family members. It's children supporting their parents and spouses supporting each other. Um, it's a really big burden on family members of people who require some support. Um, and so it's not a direct financial issue, but is more about time and resources. Right, yeah, yeah. The caregiver is also a person that's in the equation. I think people, when they're doing their financial budgets for retirement, they need to probably be thinking about, they may need some support as they get older, and mm -hmm. maybe not thinking about that. So what about assisted living? Who pays for that? Um, for the most part, that's another thing where people are on their own. There are some very limited cases where, um, where Medi-Cal will cover assisted living. There's a program called the Assisted Living Waiver, which subsidizes assisted living care for a pretty specific subset of Medi-Cal beneficiaries in a certain subset of counties. But I for the like 15 counties, like I read in your report, a very small group. Very small group. And so for the most part, um, Medi-Cal will cover you if you need nursing home care, if your needs are intense enough that you require that level of assistance, but for assisted living it's And just to put it in context, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure someone will correct me, but I think it's 58 counties in, in California, yeah. so 15 out of 58 counties. It's a, a small subgroup. What about nursing home care? Who pays for that? Um, it depends a little on what your needs are. If you need long-term nursing home care sort of indefinitely and you're low income and have you meet a number of other financial requirements, then Medi-Cal will cover it. If you're in a nursing home to recover from a medical event or a surgery, then Medicare will usually cover that if you are Medicare beneficiary. So Medi-Cal is a, is a big player in the nursing home Absolutely. situation. Yes. Um, can you briefly describe how Medi-Cal is funded? And also, when you talk about Medi-Cal, a lot of times you hear people talk about managed care. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk about those two issues for a moment? Uh, so first, Medi-Cal is uh, funded jointly between the federal government and the state government. In California, as a rule, it's a 50-50 split on Medi-Cal expenses between the state and the feds. Um, managed care is an effort that's going on across a lot of states, including California, to try and make care for people who have um, intense health needs more efficient, to coordinate across different providers, if it's different, um, if it's your nursing home director, your in-home workers, your doctors, the so different... With, so ahead. what they do, I think, in Medicare, I understand you, correct me if I'm wrong, is with Medic, with, uh, with managed care, excuse me, with managed care, what they do is they say, you know, pay this amount per month and we'll take care of all the services, as opposed to a fee for service yes. plus, we're going to pay for each one. So the assumption is in the former, in under managed care, that the company, who's ever providing it, has an incentive to keep you healthy so they don't have to provide the care. And so it's more preventative as opposed to, you know, after the fact with, you know, fee-for-service. Yes. And to I hope I made that clear. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. It, mm -hmm. It's also to help reduce duplication of services across different providers and to make sure that everybody involved in a certain patient's health is on the same page about what they're receiving, what they need, and, um, and trying to save money in doing it. Let me ask you this. Um, workforce development. I mean, the, the, obviously, the, the, you talk about healthcare workers. That's going to be, the demand's going to be changing, who we need there, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So we're, when we talk about an increasing number of seniors and an increasing number of people needing support, that's a demand for services. So we're going to need a commensurate 
increase in the supply of services as well. Um, we're going to need people with pretty specific skill sets. Um, a lot of them are going to be allied health workers who are, when you think of health workers, you think of doctors and nurses. But, but this, actually, that's not what you're talking about here. Here we're talking about home health workers, nursing aides, medical assistants, people who can be trained at a community college. Right. Um, and so it's going to be important that the state think about the capacity of community colleges to um, to train them. Well, I want to thank Laurel Beck with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute for joining us. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Up next, for those elderly who don't have the money, having access to health care is among their biggest worry. The state's Medi-Cal program is supposed to provide health care coverage for aging Californians. The administration of that program, however, has been problematic to say the least. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Recently, our guest, California State Auditor Elaine Howe, issued a report concerning $4 billion in questionable mm-hmm. Medi-Cal payments and is here to give us the details of that report. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Pleasure to be here. So first, tell our audience a little bit about uh, California's Medi-Cal program. Who benefits? What does it cover? Right. Medi-Cal in California is the California version of Medicaid. So there's a federal program that provides funding to states for individuals to receive health care and medical care. And it's typically uh, older people, people who have low income. They're Medi-Cal is essentially the payer of last resort, so it's the ability for the state of California to provide medical benefits to low-income individuals in California. And that program has been expanded recently. Right. There was a major expansion under the Affordable Care Act, uh, a huge expansion from 8 million uh, beneficiaries in California upwards to 13 million. A huge increase. 55% increase. That that is a huge increase. In a short period of time. So so Medi-Cal benefits come in two forms. There's managed care and there's fee-for-service. How does each of those work and why has there been a push toward managed care? Well, they're, they're fee-for-service, first of all. Fee-for-service is essentially what it sounds like. So I go to a physician and I receive some type of medical care, and the state of California, through Medi-Cal, pays for that particular service that that physician provided to me. Managed care is more of a suite of um, available services for someone on Medi-Cal. And managed care, the push there is it's more preventative, types of primary care, and it's a suite of um, services again, so it really encourages people to get to the doctor before it becomes an emergency, and it's more cost-effective. Which makes sense, right? If, if you keep people healthy, they don't uh, spend as much on health care services, and then the, the, the companies do better, the people selling the insurance do better. In fact, I think I had read somewhere that the, the Chinese, uh, they you pay your doctor for when you're well, and you don't pay them when you're sick. Hmm. That's kind of the same, same concept. Right. Um, so how much does Medi-Cal cost, and who, who pays for it? Medi-Cal in California is over $100 billion. Um, Most of that money is coming from the federal government, but the state's general fund uh, in the most recent year that we looked at paid about $19 billion. So it's a significant amount of money that California uh, contributes towards uh, the Medi-Cal program uh, providing services for for constituents in California. But the federal government pays a lot, and but that's right. changing, right? Right. It's starting to change. The federal government over the last year has reduced the amount of the percentage that they provide. So by 20, uh, 2020, um, the state of California will have to provide an additional billion dollars to make up for the amount that the feds yeah. are no longer going to provide. Originally, the feds are paying 100%. They're going to scale it back down to just 90%, 90%. But that's a billion dollars more for the state. Um, right. 
Okay, so how is Medi-Cal then administered? Medi-Cal is administered. The state of California, the Department of Health Care Services, is the primary state agency responsible for Medi-Cal, but where the rubber hits the road is out at the county level. So okay. if I live in Fresno County, for example, and I go into a local county office uh, and apply for Medi-Cal benefits, the county is the entity that's making the decision as to whether or not I'm eligible for those benefits. The state agency is essentially reviewing that information later and making the payments to the providers. Okay, and, but the, the, uh, the state agency pays the counties what, $2.3 billion a year? Exactly, and this. that's just to administer the Medi-Cal program. So that's to determine eligibility, report information to the state, that sort of thing. So a significant amount of money goes into just administering the program, and you're right, it's $2.3 billion uh, to the counties for administration. And so then the Department of Healthcare Service, the State Department, they would provide guidance and oversight? That's what they're supposed to do? They are supposed to provide guidance and oversight with respect to how to conduct eligibility determinations, the kind of information that county and counties should be looking for. Uh, so the state has a little bit of uh, oversight over the counties, but the counties are making the eligibility determinations and reporting those to the state. But the state has to keep some kind of in, uh, data source for that uh, for those eligibility. The county has theirs, and they should match up. But you're finding that they're not matching up. That's correct. That was the main concern in the report, why we said there were questionable payments, because the state system shows someone eligible. The county system may show them ineligible. But they're paid off. They're paid off. The state system, right? That's correct. Eligible. So if okay. someone shows up eligible in the state system, the state is going to pay the provider, I think, either through fee-for-service or managed care. I think the word we're looking for is disconnect. Right? Yes. There's a disconnect here. Right. So what is the process for resolving those inconsistencies between the state and county data systems for eligibility? Well, and that's why it's important for the counties to be reporting the information to the state. So then the state system is compared at the state level to the county system. And if there is a discrepancy, then that information is reported back to the county, and the state expects the county to resolve it, to determine why is there a discrepancy. Is our information incorrect? Is the state's information correct? incorrect? Um, and what do we need to do to fix it? And that was the break in the chain, it sounds like. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the agency that administers a Medi-Cal, the State Department of Health Services, and why uh, healthcare services, and why they were designated as a high-risk agency by the state auditor. How do they get that dubious distinction? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howe, California State Auditor, whose office recently issued a report finding billions of dollars in questionable Medi-Cal claims being paid despite eligibility discrepancies. Um, so back in January of 2018, your office mm -hmm. designated the Department of Healthcare Services as a high-risk agency. Right. What does that mean, and why did you apply it to the agency that administers Medi-Cal? Mm -hmm. Well, when, when we designate a state agency as a high-risk agency, it's based on audits, a variety of different audits that we've done where we've identified problems and the department hasn't done uh, its due diligence in trying to correct those problems. And one audit or several audits that we've done on the Medi-Cal program have found concerns with how they are administering the programs and similar to what is in this report we're talking about today, eligibility issues. So we actually identified in an audit a situation where there were uh, over 80,000 individuals and our IT folks did an analysis and said there's a problem here as far as eligibility, brought it to the department's attention and they hadn't really corrected that issue. So it's, it's a laundry list of issues that we've identified over the years that we really haven't seen much progress in fixing. So that's why we designated them well, high I kind of like about, about that and these high risk ones is you stay on it. It's not like you that's write a right. report and walk away. You say, listen, here's, here's the problem. 
here's how we expect you to fix it, and you're going to come mm -hmm. back and see if they actually fixed it. Um, Absolutely. It's also mm -hmm. interesting that it's not just you guys that have been uh, talking to them. Right. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General issued an audit report as well. So they're right. on notice there's some issues here. Right, and this is uh, Medi-Cal, and it's called Medi-Cal in California, but Medicaid and the provision of services across the country is something that the Health and Human Services Agency, the federal government, is really focusing on. And the inspector general for the federal government did look at California and issued a report shortly after we issued ours in January of this year, of 18, um, and they were really concerned about some of the things they found. Very similar concerns to ones we identified. It seems that it would have gotten their attention, but how much money are we talking about here? How many people are impacted? Well, the, as you indicated, $4 billion was the, uh, the questionable payments. Now, that doesn't mean that they were improper or inappropriate. There, some of those individuals may ultimately be deemed eligible, but there's a discrepancy we just or don't a know. disconnect, as you said earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's over 450,000 beneficiaries who are still in that situation where the, the records at the county level do not match the records at the state level. So there's got to be some resolution done to determine, is this person eligible or not? And the other thing you found, which was kind of interesting, is kind of the flip of that, where some people, 54,000 people, were right. declared as eligible by the state system, but ineligible by the county system. Right, so exactly. People so people possibly so, losing those benefits when they right. should be getting them. Right, those individuals actually were eligible in the county system, not eligible in the state system. Okay. And the problem there is, when a provider is, is determining whether to provide services to an individual, they're checking with the state to say, am I going to get paid? Okay. Well, if the state says they're ineligible, that person may be denied services. But the county is saying, yes, this person is eligible for Medi-Cal. This is a complicated area, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. So $4 billion uh, was paid to managed care. Uh, how much of the $4 billion was paid to the managed care providers? Because you had managed care and fee-for-service. Right. Uh, how much was paid for fee-for-service Managed care was $3 billion. And that is, that's evidence of the state is really pushing is people in to manage care. A mm -hmm. billion dollars was fee for service. Now, of the of the three billion, the state paid out about seven hundred million of that. A lot of it was federal money, but there's still significant amount of right. money that the state of California is paying for these beneficiaries. And if this continues, that's just going to be a bigger problem for the state budget because the feds are pulling back on what they're paying, right, from one hundred percent to ninety percent. Absolutely payment. correct. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, how and why did this happen? Well, it happened because the system is set up so these exception reports. So when the counties report the information to the state agency, healthcare services, the two computer systems compare the records. So it's all it, electronic, it's it, all in you know Excel spreadsheet, nice right. and neat, easy to use. Right. The, well, there, there's, <laughs> there's electronic information. The problem is once those discrepancies are identified, it's reported back to the counties. In some cases, it's reported back electronically. Unfortunately, in many cases, it's reported paper-based. So a county may get a big stack those of Those old computer paper. printouts that just go right. on and on and, and on. And it would take forever to try to figure out do we have a problem here? How do we reconcile this? So our recommendation in that case is you've got to make all of this electronic, make it easier for the counties, provide more guidance to the counties as to what they need to do to resolve these dis disconnects. You, know, you have a really interesting example in, in your report about yeah. someone who had died. Right. And they kept paying. It was in a managed care situation. They kept paying the premium for four years. That's right. So the, the family of that beneficiary who passed away notified the county, my family member has passed so therefore so the county w immediately went into the system and said no longer receiving benefits yeah. 
person has passed away, but the state system didn't change. So the state's continuing to deem this person eligible. So when a managed care provider is billing the state, they're getting paid. Right. And then I think the number you came up with, that one case alone was $383,000. So right. That's a chunk of change. Um, right. So how long have these discrepancies in, in eligibility uh, determinations and state payments existed? Is this a new problem been going on for a while? No, it's not a new problem. It's a problem that's been around for quite a long time. I mean, what our audit looked at was a three-year window. So a lot of these individuals have, there's been a disconnect between the state records and the, and the local county records for more than two years. And the state law really requires some of these uh, decisions to be made, these eligibility determinations to be made within 12 months. So anything beyond a year is a, a significant problem. So we identified, I think it was 50 some odd percent of the 400, over 200,000 beneficiaries have been- 57%, you've got a good 57%. memory. 57%, <laughs> yeah. yeah, longer than two years. So mm -hmm. we've got to get these situations resolved, either deem the person eligible or deem that person ineligible and stop making payments. Okay, a closer look at this report in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with State Auditor Elaine Howe about an audit her office recently conducted on the problems in California's Medi-Cal uh, program. Uh, there seems to be a discrepancy uh, between mm -hmm. state and county data systems, like we were talking about, uh, regarding uh, who's eligible for, mm -hmm. for Medi-Cal benefits. Mm -hmm. What factors contributed to these unresolved discrepancies? One of the biggest factors that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier is the expansion of Medi-Cal. So under the Affordable Care Act, more and more individuals were deemed eligible or could be eligible for Medi-Cal benefits. So that really increased the number of potential beneficiaries in the state for a, a, That's a, a lot. huge spike. A huge spike, fi yeah. over 50%. So the counties, <clears throat> excuse me, were really overwhelmed with the workload. So uh, that was one of the contributing factors uh, to the, the increasing number of discrepancies between the records at the state level and, and the records at the local level. And then Covered California was having some issues with their data system, their mm -hmm. computer system, so that was causing some problems as well. That has since been resolved, but it certainly was a factor uh, that affected the, the volume of discrepancies. Yeah, a lot of people thought that, that Covered California actually did a compared to other states, did a very good job in the rollout mm -hmm. of the HCA. Mm -hmm. Just imagine what's happening in some of these other states. <clears throat> right. um, so uh, discrepancies in, in the, uh, the Medi-Cal data uh, wasn't, didn't just result in paying questionable claims. It also, as we talked about earlier, led to the wrongful denial of services to those who were eligible uh, mm -hmm. to receive benefits. What did you find in that regard? Right. So uh, we talked about the over 450,000 beneficiaries where they were, were deemed eligible at the local level, or there's a discrepancy. We identified 54,000 individuals who were deemed eligible by the county, but when you look at the state records, they are not deemed eligible. So those are situations where an individual should be eligible for benefits, may be denied, or their benefits may be delayed. If they go to a provider and a provider looks at the state system and says, no, you're not eligible for Medi-Cal, I can't provide mm -hmm. services, that it causes a problem. So there's over 50,000 individuals in that situation. And you, and you had an example there where this lasted for one person more than a year. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, um, so your analysis, though, it excluded 2.6 million Medi-Cal beneficiaries. You know, who was excluded and why were they excluded? Well, we looked at a particular program. We looked at Medi-Cal. So the, the other programs that were excluded um, 
use the same database, okay. the same system that healthcare services. So it's like the CalFresh program, CalWorks program. So this is the same database. All the safety at the net state programs. Level. Exactly, okay. all the safety net programs. So there may be individuals in those programs similarly. They just extrapolate these numbers out. Wow. Right, right. So we may have questionable payments there. We may have individuals who are being denied benefits. It's the same situation, uh, but we couldn't look at everything. So we focused on Medi-Cal and the medical side of it as opposed to some of those other programs. We wanted to talk about those programs in the report because we want healthcare services to look at those as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just boy, think about all the potential issues out there. You know, one of your findings was it wasn't that the state didn't have a process to ensure that counties were correcting these data discrepancies, mm -hmm. but the problem was that they failed to check to see if the problems were corrected. They 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 tell the county, hey, there's a problem, but not really follow up. Um, right. How were the counties notified that, that there were problems here? Well, as we talked about a little bit ago, both electronically, uh, there would be a report back to the county, but a lot of the reports were paper-based. Again, and you're, as a county, you're getting volumes. We actually have a picture in the report of a stack of uh, you know, paper-based reports, right. and you can't sort through that. You you have it's to do that. It reminded me like when you saw computers like in the in the 1980s or e something. Exactly. So we are recommending healthcare services. You need to provide electronic reporting to the county, so it makes it easier for them to sort information and really dig into those discrepancies and try to resolve them. And they're doing that for some counties now. So we're saying, if you can do it for some counties, why can't you do it for all? I think another. You give some great examples in this report. Another one is in this particular situation, L.A. County. Um, um, which has 52% of the questionable payments, more right. than half. Mm -hmm. It takes them two weeks to manually process this voluminous monthly report they get from the state. Right. Two exactly. weeks. Um, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So according to your report, last year the state paid counties $2.3 billion to administer uh, this Medi-Cal eligibility program locally. Right. Um, what has the state done then to ensure that counties are resolving these eligibility discrepancies in a timely manner? I mean, they're paying the money for the right. work. Right, and that's where we feel Department of Healthcare Services has really fallen down on the job because they have a responsibility, number one, to provide appropriate guidance, provide information in a format that's going to be useful to the counties, easy for the counties to use, but then hold the counties uh, accountable for getting those discrepancies resolved. And one of the things they are required to do is okay, if a county is having problems and there's a lot of discrepancies, you got to put together a corrective action plan. We need to get these issues resolved timely. You're supposed to get them done within a certain time frame. You're not doing that. So we need a plan from you as how, to how you're going to fix that. Healthcare services is not doing that, and they need to. Yeah, it's interesting. And you said 85% of the questionable payments were attributed to just five right. counties, uh, right. Alameda, Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, and San Diego. So that's right. That's where you might want to focus your, your efforts. That's exactly why we put that in the audit report, because they were saying, well, there's 58 counties it's going to take us a long time so we took a look at that and said if you just focus on these five counties you're going to get the, the lion's share of the problems corrected. Low-hanging fruit. Um, exactly. Okay up next so how do we fix the problems with Medi-Cal? The state auditor has some suggestions that conversation in a moment. Welcome back I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute we're talking with Elaine Howe the California State Auditor about a recent audit her office conducted on California's Medi-Cal program where they found four billion dollars in questionable Medi-Cal payments. That's a lot of money. Um, so your office highlighted some significant problems uh, with mm -hmm. this program, but you made some recommendations. You didn't sure. just say problems. Here are the recommendations. Right. What do you want to see the legislature do? We made a specific recommendation to the legislature to require the Department of Health Care Services to report out on how well counties are complying with state requirements 
to determine eligibility, number one, but number two, if there is a discrepancy, how quickly are they getting that discrepancy resolved? In, in both cases, determining somebody should be eligible and get mm -hmm. benefits so that person isn't denied uh, those medical services, but on the flip side, if someone is deemed ineligible, let's get that determination resolved so that we stop right. making died, payments. You don't make right. payments for four years. Exactly. So we want the legislature to require health care services to report out on how well all of the counties in the state are doing in complying with those requirements. It seems to make logical sense. So mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about this. So uh, what can the state do about recovering some, these inappropriately spent uh, monies, these funds? Um, can they recover that money and how much can they recover? In some cases, they can recover the money. It's going to be a little bit easier with managed care um, because they can build language into the contracts that allows them to recover payments. And, and the example we talked about earlier, the 383000 for the deceased beneficiary, the state is trying to recover those funds, and hopefully the state well, will be just, able you to. You tell the managed care provider, hey, listen, you right. didn't provide the services, so right. reimburse us that reimburse money. Reimburse us, right, or offset future payments. Uh, the state could do that. The concern we have and the difficulty the state's going to have is related to those individuals who are on Medi-Cal and they're, they've been deemed eligible temporarily. So there's a, there's a process in the state where while the county's determining whether or not I'm fully eligible, I can get benefits, okay. especially if I'm transferred from one program to another. Some people transferred out of SSI, their income is too high, but they may be eligible for Medi-Cal, so they don't lose benefits. They're in a temporary situation. Right. But if they are ultimately deemed ineligible, we can't get that money right. back as a Because that's a federal law. That's a federal requirement. Federal requirement. Yes. Okay. So what about preventing future erroneous payments as well as ensuring that eligible people receive the care that they're, they're, they should be getting? I mean, you talk about, for example, these exception reports is one right. that the, the, the counties get. I mean, how right. do you fix this problem? Right, exactly. Well, healthcare services needs to provide better guidance to the counties, but they absolutely have to provide this information in an electronic format and then really work closely with the counties, reach out to the counties, uh, particularly put an aging report together. We've had this discrepancy going for three months now. Fresno County, Sacramento County. Right. What are you doing to fix this? So the state needs to do a better job in really communicating and working with the counties to make sure that these discrepancies get fixed. But that's going to require probably some IT, uh, information mm -hmm. technology work. Um, and we've talked about information technology <laughs> in the state in the past. Sure. Any concerns that, sure. I mean, to make sure they get this right. Well, right. And and the, the, the difficulty is three, the counties that can use three different systems at the local level, and mm -hmm. then the state has its system. But again, we argued with the department. We said you were able to provide this information electronically to X number of counties in the state. I don't recall the exact number. But if you can do it for some, why can't you do it for all? So you really have to focus on that. So we don't think there'll be significant changes that would be need to be made on IT, uh, but it's clearly an important thing to do. You've got a template. Hopefully they'll go forward and use it. Mm -hmm. well, I want to thank the state auditor, Lane Howell, for joining us again. Um, if you want to stay mm -hmm. current in state and local politics, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or log on to our website at maddieandsoup.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Matter Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.